0: And that kind of idea permeates Jesus' teaching. The idea that there is something of great immense value and the Kingdom of God is made up of people who recognize that value. Because Jesus has first of all given this description. This is a descriptor, as we said the last time we were in Mark, that Jesus calls them unto himself. And when we see that language in the scripture, this is saying to us that Jesus is not speaking to a mixed group of people. He's not speaking to a group of people, some who are believers and followers in Jesus, others are just merely curious. Others are there for the healing. Mixed in, there's maybe a few Pharisees that are listening closely for something they might trip Jesus up on. No, no. Jesus, when He calls them unto Himself, Mark clues us in to tell us Jesus is now speaking to a uniform group of people. These are Jesus' called out people. And to His called out people, He then gives this description of what it is to be a follower of Christ. As we looked at last time, you must deny self, take up cross, and follow me. Now, is as though Jesus senses their consternation. He senses their wrestling with the words that He has just spoken. Jesus picks up on the fact that they are in their minds now perceiving that Jesus has described the hardest of all descriptions to deny self. As we talked about last time, Jesus doesn't say deny yourself something. He says deny self, take up cross, follow me as though they're wrestling in their mind to say, Jesus, what you just described is the hardest thing possible. Now it's as though Jesus wants to follow that immediately with some motivation, some encouragement to those who are wrestling with his hard words now. And so he'll follow this up now with a series of paradoxes. In fact, this is a section of paradoxes, five paradoxes in a row, rapid fire. So this being such a section of paradoxes, let's just pause for a minute and let's just recall what a paradox is. We all might say, well, we know exactly what a paradox is. Well, we do, of course, but sometimes it's helpful to take the things that we know and put them into words because that helps us to grasp them firmly. And because this is a section of literally five paradoxes in a row, I think it's helpful for us to remind ourselves exactly what a paradox is. A paradox is one of Jesus's, I think, second to the parable, Jesus's favorite method of teaching. He uses paradoxes all the time. And aside from the parable, this is his most common method of teaching, is to use the paradox. And then next to that would be the hyperbole. And we'll see both of those in this section here. But now the paradox is something that Jesus uses that... Well, what is a paradox? It it is an apparent self-contradiction. It's a statement that apparently seems to contradict itself. It seems to be opposed to common sense until you think about it more deeply or think about it in a different way or see it from a different aspect and then it makes sense. That's what a paradox is. We sometimes use paradoxes in our everyday language. We might use something like, well, the uh, the one that I thought of is the paradox that, says, that goes something like this. Whenever I speak, I always lie. And you think, well, that doesn't seem to make any sense until you maybe think about it a little bit more deeply or think about it from a different angle. And this is the type of tactic that Jesus used, and he used it often. If you think about his teachings, you will recognize the fact that the Gospels are filled with paradoxical language, things that seem to defy common sense or seem to be opposed to themselves until you think about it more deeply. So why does Jesus use the paradox? Well, the paradox requires the listener or the reader to think more deeply about what has been said, and in thinking more deeply about it, you see it perhaps from a different angle or from a different perspective, and then it makes sense. So the point, the purpose of a paradox, is to draw the listener in to think more deeply about what has been said. Thus, what has been said resonates with the listener more. So, for example, Jesus would use the paradoxical statement in a few chapters in chapter 10. He will say that uh, if you want to be first, you must be last. Because he who would be first must be servant of all. So you hear that paradox there. Whoever wants to be first must be last. Now, Jesus could quite easily have said, you know, my kingdom is a kingdom of servant minded people. Servant-minded people are the ones who excel in the kingdom of God, those who put others first, because my kingdom is a kingdom that's about people who put others first. He could have said it, said it that way. But by saying it the way he said it, if he who would be first must be last, he requires, he causes the listener to have to think more deeply about what he said. And in doing so, his words resonate and stick with us. And so this is why I think Jesus uses the paradox so frequently. And so he's going to use the paradox here in the sayings that he gives, this paradox, in fact, five paradoxes. If you take a look at our passage, the paradoxes begin from last time when he says, whoever would save his life will lose it. I'm sorry, from verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So there's a paradox there. We'll look at that one today, followed out by another one. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So you say, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Gaining the world, forfeiting soul, wouldn't world be part of of everything? How do you gain everything and then lose the soul? So it's sort of paradoxical for us. He follows that up by another one. What can a man give in return for his soul? So you think, well, how can someone give something in return for their soul? Because their soul, we would think of that as our very person, as who we are. How can you give something in exchange for yourself? So a paradoxical statement followed up by another one. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation, of him will the Son of Man be also ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So you think, well, how can Jesus, how can the Son be ashamed in the presence of the Father? That's a paradox because the Son cannot be ashamed in the presence of the Father. And then a final paradox in verse 1. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's a fifth paradoxical statement that we'll get to sometime later. So these five paradoxes in a row, Jesus plainly is wanting to say the things that he's saying in such a way that cause us to slow down and think more carefully about what he has said. So all of these statements, or at least the first three of the paradoxes, which we'll look at today, these are revolving around the question of value or worth, which is going to cause us really to begin with the question, what is the most valuable thing in all of life? What is the most valuable thing on earth? What is the most valuable thing to us here? What is the most valuable thing to you? What holds the greatest worth? So that's the question that's going to be the center of the verses that we look at today. What is the most valuable thing here in this life? Now, as we think about value and worth and assigning value to things, this is something that as we think about this, I think you'll agree with me, really hinges on all of life. All of life really centers upon the question of valuation and worth. So if you think about this, all that you do, everything that you do, everything that you're about, everything that you focus on, everything that you give energy to, everything that you give thought to, all of that is a result of valuation, of assigning worth. Because those things that you assign worth to are those things which you pursue. Those things which you value are those things that you will give things for, including your time and efforts and your energy. And so all of life really is about what we value and what we find worthy. And we know how this process of valuing things, we know how all this works. We remember back from economics class in high school or college, we remember about the price of things and the whole supply and demand. You remember that? Where you have this little graph and one was supply and one was demand. And and as the graph went, as supply went up and demand went down, worth went down or price or value went down. Or the opposite was also the case when demand went up and supply went down, then the worth or the value of something went up. And so we know that formula and how that formula works. And that formula really speaks to all of the human experience, all of our life. It speaks to the things that we buy, the things that we use our money and our resources to acquire. And so we know how all that supply and demand thing works. We remembered from just what, a couple of years ago when there was this pandemic thing and, and there were these events that were causing the supply of certain things to be reduced. We all remember probably going to the grocery store and the empty shelves. And so supply is reduced, but then demand is still high. And so we all remember what happened to the price of a dozen eggs or the price of a gallon of gasoline, those kinds of things. But then conversely, we also know that when supply is very high and demand is low, then price begins to drop. And this works for the, all the commodities of our life, but it also works for those things that are low in supply. Those things that can be unique and 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 uh, uh, all to themselves, the, the one of a kind kind of things. We've all heard the stories of the the painting, the one of a kind painting that sold for some crazy amount of money because it was one of a kind and painted by some. Uh, A particular person or some item of jewelry that was unique or one of a kind and highly valued and sold for a lot of money. We all know how that sort of formula works. I remember about uh, maybe about a month or maybe two months ago, I had for the first time in my life the experience of watching Antique Roadshow. Never in my life had the inclination to watch that, but I was in a waiting room somewhere and that's what was on the boob tube. So this Antique Roadshow, if you've experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, So these people come and they got these things and they're either some uh, old item from their closet or their attic or something like that and they'll wait in line, they'll come up there and some guy will look at them and he'll say, oh, this is this and it came from this and this is what it means. And, and so I would give it a, a, a range of value in about this range. And then somebody else would come and they would have something and they would say, due to the rarity of this thing, there's so few of these It's really difficult to assign a value. So I would put it in in this range. And the fewer they were, fewer of the thing there were, then the the higher the value would tend to be. And so we understand that concept. We understand that when something is rare and in high demand, it could be of high value. I recently read of a a watch company, a maker of custom wristwatches that made these very, very high-quality watches. They used the best material and and incredible craftsmanship. And they made wristwatches. I'm not kidding you or exaggerating. Some would sell for as much as a million and a half dollars for a wristwatch. So that informs us. It, It just tells us of what we instinctively know, that the value that people place on things really has a lot to do with what they see the worth in it, and how much of that is available. Now, all of that feeds into the passage that is right before us. The passage that is before us is all about assigning worth and assigning value. Now, the idea of assigning worth or assigning value or considering of worth, this is something that is actually quite fundamental to Jesus' teaching. It's fundamental to all of the New Testament, but in particular, it's fundamental to Jesus' teaching. If you think with me for just a moment, I think you'll recognize the fact that Jesus' teaching included this aspect of assigning the correct value, and it included this not sporadically, but actually all over the place. Think with me of, uh, for example, Matthew chapter 13. There's those two parables in Matthew 13. One was the, what we call the pearl of great price. And the other is almost like it. It's the the treasure in the field. And both of those parables are essentially teaching the same thing, which is to say that there was this pearl. There was this pearl dealer, this pearl collector who came across a pearl that was so spectacular, so valuable, so desirable that he assigned it this worth. He declared it to have such worth that he would sell all the rest of his pearls just to have that one. Or the treasure in the field in which the person said, this treasure is of such worth that it is in my best interest. I will come out ahead if I sell everything I have and use it just to buy that field because that field contains that treasure. And that kind of idea permeates Jesus' teaching. The idea that there is something of great immense value And the kingdom of God is made up of people who recognize that value. So we come across things like Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler in which he'll say to the rich young ruler, how much do you value eternal life? Do you value it enough to sell all of your your possessions and follow me? Or the conversations that he would have with his soon-to-be apostles in which he would say, leave your nets, follow me. Or leave your tax booth. Follow me. Consider me of greater worth than your nets or your tax booth or or the uh, possessions that you have. Or the, for example, the parable of the guy who had the bountiful harvest and tore down all his barns to build bigger ones. And then the point of the parable was that he was a fool. You fool. For your very life, your soul is demanded of you this very night. Or... Many such instances in which Jesus would say things like, count the cost. Nobody begins to build a building without counting the cost first. No king goes to war without first counting the cost. And many such instances we could see in which Jesus has as a very fundamental point of his teaching the right assessing of the value of the worth of something. This passage before us is perhaps the central passage in which Jesus teaches That the kingdom of God is made up of those who have assessed something to be of great value and considering something to be of greater value than all other things, they will then deny self, take up cross, follow him. So, with that introduction being said, let's now read our passage from verse, I'll read from verse 34 down through verse 1 of chapter 9. So, beginning from verse 34, and calling the crowd to him, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So in beginning the passage, you might have recognized as though I read it there, the emphasis that I placed, there's those four uh, sequential verses that all begin with the word for, F-O-R. And those are indicating for us, each one of those words for is indicating for us that the statement that follows that word is a statement that's in support of the previous statement. In other words, verse 34 is the statement, and then verse 35, 36, 37, and 38 are for, F-O-U-R, f o u r four supports that Jesus gives in support of the statement deny self, take up cross, follow me. Okay, So the first one, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So that's as far as we'll make it today. So let's begin as we look at these passages, and let's just begin by noticing a word and talking briefly about that word because this is a word that really, it's it's crucial that we understand the concept behind this word to understand where Jesus is coming from. And the word in our passage is the word life and soul. So you see that word twice in verse 35, whoever would save his life and whoever loses his life. And then verse 36, you see it again, but now it's translated soul. You see it again in verse 37, and again it's translated soul. So in our translation, and if you are using other translations, you probably are experiencing something of the same effect. You're experiencing the editors and the translators of our Bibles struggling to translate something that in the Greek is one word. It's the word from which we get our word psychology, psyche. And it's the single word that the Greek language has that would describe, as it's translated here, both life and soul. So a couple of examples in your notes here of how, for example, Matthew, the same writer, will use the same word to describe what we would use two words to describe. First of all, in Matthew chapter 2, rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And then again in Matthew chapter 10, same writer, he uses the same word in this way, do not fear those who, who kill the body, but cannot kill the, and there it is, soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So in the English language, we have the word life and we have the word soul. And they describe two different things for us. Life is a word that describes the life, not to use the word in defining the word, but the life that we have that's really attached to the physical body. That's what we think of when we think of life, is the existence that we have that's connected to our physical existence, the life of our body. We think of the word soul as the existence that we have that's disconnected from our body, don't we? So if we think of soul, we think of the existence of a person apart from their existence in a body. However, the Greek language has no such distinction. It only has the one word which describes all of existence. And so this one word will describe the existence that one experiences physically in this life, as well as the existence that one will experience after this life or separated from this life. And it's one concept, one word in the Greek. Uh, interestingly, it's also one word in the Hebrew as well. And so thereby we have kind of a challenge. And the challenge is this. As you can see, the ESV translators are, are struggling to, or at least I should say attempting in their use of two different words to follow Jesus' train of thought. And that can be maybe helpful, maybe not so helpful, because the first two times they used the word, they, they translated life, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. That, that causes us to think about one who would forsake this earthly life, and they would say, out of faith and devotion to Christ, they would say, I will die for Christ. Like Peter will say, I'll give my life for you. And so by translating it life, that leads us to think of giving a physical life or laying down our life. I would die for Jesus. But then as they use the same word translated soul, they are communicating an idea of of an existence that is beyond this earthly existence. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Well, it's the same word as life right there. What would it gain a man To, to, to... Uh, What would it help? What would it profit if you gained the whole world, but you lost your life or your soul? It's the same word. Again, verse 37. What can you give in return for your soul? Same word as life. What can you give in return for your life? So you see the challenge that the translators are faced with. If they translated life all four times, then the second two times we sort of lose the idea. Likewise, if they translated soul all four times, then the first two times, then we're also led in a different path. This is why when we looked at the previous verse and Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, you might recall that we, we thought at that time, we said, well, a lot, of, a lot of people will look at this and they'll say what Jesus is saying is you must be willing to give your life for me. You must be willing to die, to die for me, which is true, which is absolutely true. But that's not what Jesus was getting at. Jesus was not saying you must be willing to die for me. He was saying more than that. He was saying, remember we looked at Romans 6, And we said what the cross means for the believer is that we look to the cross and we see the old self on the cross dying with Jesus. And we see the new self coming out of the tomb with Jesus. That's what it means to take up our cross. It includes the reality that we would be willing to lay down our physical life for Christ. But it's much more than that. It's the forsaking of the old self. It's the denying of the old self. That old man, I don't know him. He's dead. He died on the cross with Jesus. The new man or the new woman is what now lives. Okay, So if Jesus, in verse 35, if we translate that whoever would lose his life for my sake or whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it, we might be tempted to think once again in terms of earthly life. But it's important to see that Jesus is saying much more than that. Whoever would gain his soul. Will lose it. Whoever would lose his soul for my sake in the Gospels will gain it. Okay, so this is not an easy concept for English speakers because all of our life we've had two distinct words to refer to the two th- two concepts, but we must endeavor to try to merge them together in our mind because that's what Mark did, that's what Peter did, that's what Jesus did. All right, so let's think of this as our entire existence, everything that is central to you, everything about you, which would include your physical body, your physical life here in the here and now, as well as the you that will continue to live after your physical body dies, which also will include the you that continues to live after your body is resurrected and reunited. It's the entirety of who you are. It's the entirety of your existence. It is, if you want to use this word, your personhood. Okay? Not an easy concept for us to get at, but we must try to get at it in order to follow God's or Jesus' meaning. So whoever would save his life, his soul, his existence, his personhood, will lose it. But whoever will lose his soul, life, personhood, existence, whoever would lose himself, now we're hearing echoes of, let him deny himself. Remember that? Deny himself. Not deny yourself something, but look to the old self and say, I don't know that person. I have no relation with him. I have no connection with him. He's dead. He died on the cross. Now, the new person lives. So you see the continuity. Whoever would save that, that, that you were supposed to deny. The denial of self. The looking at the old man and saying, he's dead. Whoever would try to save that will lose it. But whoever forsakes it, you see the continuity. Whoever forsakes that, whoever denies that, whoever looks to the cross of Christ and by faith says that person's dead, Jesus says that's the person who will gain it. That's his paradox that he's he's laying out for us, this paradox of the soul, the personhood, the core, the central reality of who we are. Those who will deny that for my sake will gain that. Those who cling to that will lose it.